1820 letter to William Short, Thomas Jefferson referred to the God of the Old Testament as a being of terrific character, cruel, vindictive, capricious, and unjust. Richard Dawkins, in his book, The God Delusion, wrote, The God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Dr. Peter Enns, who used to be a tenured professor at Westminster Theological Seminary in Philadelphia, a solid reform seminary, caused no small controversy before his departure. He wrote in his book, The Bible Tells Me So, quote, the God of the universe often comes across like a tribal warlord, end of quote. Dr. Enns believes the Old Testament gets God completely wrong. Many people can't stomach the intensity of God's holiness, righteousness, and wrath. But you know what? It is also true that many people cannot grasp God's compassion and how God's compassion and justice are equally his essence. They reject God because all they perceive about him is what they believe to be indifference, viciousness, spitefulness, and brutality. What is your perception of God? And does your perception of God align with how God has revealed himself in Scripture? We are always in danger of elevating some attributes of God above others, which can lead to an inadequate and imbalanced view of God. We, we shouldn't dismiss or diminish certain attributes of God as if God has parts or as if God can be anything less than the perfection of all of his attributes all of the time. Presbyterian pastor and author Mark Jones writes that God is not the sum of his parts. There is not one thing and another in God. Rather, whatever is in God, God is. He is absolute, which means that there are no distinctions within his being. In other words, God is simple. Jones continues, God's love is his power, is his eternity, is his immutability, is his omniscience, is his goodness, and so forth. The simplicity of God helps us to understand that perfect consistency exists in God's attributes. So, when God is loving, he is also just. When he is just, he is also loving because love and justice are equally and fully his essence all the time. Nowadays, many people fixate on God's love and mercy while denying his justice and wrath, which ultimately undermines his character, nature, and essence, including his love and mercy. But it is also popular to fixate on God as omnipotent judge, the transcendent, righteous, holy, wrathful, and vengeful God, which he is, while ignoring his deep mercy, kindness, grace, and compassion. 
We are always in danger, brothers and, si brothers and sisters, of elevating some attributes of God above others, which can lead to an inadequate and imbalanced view of God. We must know God in the perfection of all of his divine attributes because we need him to be all those things for us. We need him to be all that he is. Now, you may struggle. Some of us are, are probably at different places with this, but you may struggle to know and delight in God's fatherly kindness and compassion. You may perceive him as cold towards you. So this morning, my aim is to help you see God's compassion in the person and work of Jesus Christ and to realize that God in all his perfection and holiness is utterly and unreservedly kind and compassionate and that you have his kindness and compassion by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. I want you to see the compassionate heart of Jesus, of God, in five things. Teaching and preaching, which I'm counting as one. Teaching and preaching, healing, leadership, missions, and prayer. Number one, the compassionate heart of Jesus in teaching and preaching. Verse 35 parallels what Matthew wrote back in Matthew 4, 23, and 24. We've heard this kind of thing before. Verse 35 says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. In Matthew 4, the verses about his teaching, preaching, and healing introduce us to Jesus' first major discourse, the first of five in Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew wraps up the Sermon on the Mount with these words, and when Jesus finished these sayings. That kind of brings it to, to a landing. Here in Matthew 9, the verses about his teaching, preaching, and healing transition us into Jesus' second major discourse, which ends in chapter 10, verse 20, 42, rather, 42. And then the next verse, Matthew 11, chapter 11, verse 1 says, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples. They were, were heading into the second major discourse. So verse 35 and Matthew 4, 23 and 24 are similar transitions into teaching sessions of Jesus. Jesus didn't descend from heaven to earth to keep his schedule open and to relax. He gave himself tirelessly to teach and to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He traveled over rugged terrain to cities and villages and synagogues to impart knowledge and wisdom and good news for the good of others. He exposed error and he introduced truth. Why? Because his heart is filled with compassion for confused, disordered, and lost people. People need truth, and Jesus gave truth because he is kind-hearted and concerned. He saw people in their misery and desired to help them by explaining and declaring the gospel of the kingdom. What is the gospel of the kingdom? 
It is the good news of the arrival of the king, the good news of the king's sovereign reign and rule, the good news of salvation for God's covenant people, the good news of the dawning of the messianic age. Jesus was preaching the gospel of the kingdom and gathering to himself a people to reign and rule in their midst and to bless them with kingdom gifts. That's what's been happening in Matthew. Mark chapter 6, verse 34 is very clarifying. It says this, When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd, and he began to teach them many things. Did you catch that? Jesus noticed their spiritual peril, their misery, and showed compassion. How? By teaching them many things. His teaching and preaching are expressions of his compassion. Now, do you receive teaching and preaching in corporate worship as expressions of God's compassion to you? The teaching and preaching of godly men in the local church is a glorious gift of compassion to God's covenant people because through them, through those faithful expositors of God. God's word, Jesus, the good shepherd, shepherds his beloved sheep. This is the heart of Jesus. Number two, the compassionate heart of Jesus in healing. Jesus didn't simply teach and preach the gospel of the kingdom. He gave experiences of it tangible blessings of the kingdom. Verse 35, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. Meaning he healed people with every kind of disease and affliction. Leprosy, paralysis, fever, blood hemorrhaging, demon oppression, chronic pain, epilepsy, and more. He healed them of their misery. Why? Because he's indifferent to human affliction? Because he's all law and no love? No, of course not. Jesus heals because his heart is full of compassion and kindness and sympathy and gentleness and thoughtfulness and helpfulness and love. It's, it's his nature. We are right to see and glory in the messianic identity, power, and authority of Jesus in his inauguration of the kingdom. But we must not miss the king's heart. His teaching, preaching, and healing reveal his power and authority. Yes, yes. But they also reveal his heart of compassion. The Messiah is compassionate. The King of Kings is compassionate. The Lord of Lords is compassionate towards miserable people who have sin and guilt. This is not too good to be true because it is true. God in human flesh comes to miserable people and he heals them, body and soul, because he is compassionate. We don't even need miracles to know his compassion. We don't. How many of you have recuperated from illness or surgery? I've had pneumonia twice. No fun. In his kind providence, not through miracle, but through his ordinary yet supernatural means of providence, God healed me. 
antibiotics, they're no less God's compassion and power. I was poisoned with hydrogen peroxide and lived. God sustained me. I ate potting soil as a child. Had some fascinating intestinal issues. And God healed me. Haven't you been sick and gotten better? What is that? That's Christ's compassion for you through healing. Not miracle. Miracles have a, have a precise meaning in scripture. But God's supernatural providence nonetheless. Every doctor visit, prescription, injection, operation, treatment, therapy, crutch, walker, nurse, bedpan, catheter, monitor is the compassion of Jesus for you. And we get ourselves into trouble when we assume we deserve God's compassion. We easily forget God's holiness and our sinful human condition. Chronic pain and illness and maltreatment all have a way of bringing out our arrogant mindset of entitlement and worthiness. Who among us deserves Jesus' compassion? Who among us deserves any good gift of God? Any sense of entitlement diminishes the extent to which we see and experience the compassion of Jesus. Diminishes our gratitude. You cannot know the compassion of Jesus without knowing the horror of your own sin, guilt, and misery, and how the gospel is the greatest gift and expression of God's compassion in Christ. Any comfort in this life is marvelous compassion from God who gives because he wants to, not because you or I are deserving. If you don't get guilt and grace, gratitude won't be the cadence of your life and you will live in a perpetual state of entitlement, thus depreciating the compassion God has extended you in Christ. Any sense of entitlement and worthiness veils the warmth of God, of his compassion in Christ and in your healing. Number three, the compassionate heart of Jesus in leadership. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. This is verse 36. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw the crowds of people and cared deeply about their hopeless and helpless condition. Matthew said he had compassion for them. It might sound a little gross, but the literal term here refers to entrails, the viscera, the bowels, the intimate organs inside your body. When organs are stirred and moved, it represents... Deep compassion. It's like saying you felt something deep down in your gut, in your heart. The, the verb is passive, meaning Jesus was moved with pity and compassion. Or as one source said, he had a visceral feeling of compassion. Jesus looked at the despondent crowd and his heart, his gut was deeply moved with pity, compassion, sympathy, and benevolence towards the people. He felt deeply. He was emotional. That's his heart. Now, why was he moved with compassion? 
Why compassion? The people were harassed and helpless. Like sheep without a shepherd, they were troubled and distressed. They were thrown down, or you could say bullied, or you could say beat down. They were unable to help themselves. They were, as J.C. Ryle said, neglected souls. Neglected souls. And I think to really get the sense of verse 36, we need to go back to the Old Testament. We could go to Numbers 27 where Moses pleads for a successor so that Israel was not as sheep that have no shepherd. Or we could go to the marvelous Bethlehem prophecy that we've heard of Micah 5 from Micah 5, 1 through 5, which says of the Messiah, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. So consider those passages, but let's go to Ezekiel 34. And I just want to invite you to turn there if you can, if you have it on your phone or, or a, a paper copy of it, turn to Ezekiel 34 and follow along as I read verses 11 through 24. And as I read these, I want you to think about Jesus' compassion in our verses this morning. Ezekiel 34 11 through 24. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost and I will bring back the strayed and I will bind up the injured and I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. As for you, my flock, thus says the Lord God, behold, I judge between sheep and sheep, between rams and male goats. Is it not enough for you to feed on the good pasture that you must tread down with your feet the rest of your pasture and to drink of clear water that you must muddy the rest of the water with your feet? And must my sheep eat what you have trodden with your feet? And drink what you have muddied with your feet. Therefore, thus says the Lord God to them, Behold, I, I myself will judge between the fat sheep and the lean sheep. Because you push with side and shoulder and thrust at all the weak with your horns till you have scattered them abroad, I will rescue my flock. They shall no longer be a prey, and I will judge between sheep and sheep. Now listen closely, people of God. Verse 23, and I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. 
That is the compassion of Jesus. God promised to rescue his flock. God promised to set up over his sheep one shepherd, his servant David. Now, when Ezekiel wrote that, David had been dead for 400 years, about 400 years. My servant David refers to the Messiah promised in the Davidic covenant. God in human flesh, Jesus the Christ who would reign and rule from the throne of God, the good and preeminent and sovereign shepherd who leads his sheep to eternal life with God. As the good shepherd, as John 10 describes, Jesus looked at the sheep of Israel and they were depressed and beat down under bad spiritual leadership. The religious leaders of Judaism were not teaching and preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God for the comfort and assurance and salvation of the people. Instead, they, they laid confusing messages and legalistic burdens upon the people, and, and they opposed Jesus. In verse 36, as Craig Blomberg notices, is a stinging rebuke to the Pharisees, scribes, and Sadducees. As the tender and loving shepherd of God's sheep, Jesus saw the people in their misery and his, his heart went out to them in deep compassion. He saw neglected souls and he was compelled to lead his sheep into his kingdom. J.C. Ryle said, quote, let us mark in the next place our Lord's tender concern for neglected souls. He saw multitudes of people when he was on earth scattered about like sheep having no shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. He saw them neglected by those who, for the time, ought to have been teachers. He saw them ignorant, hopeless, helpless, dying, and unfit to die. The sight moved him to deep pity. That loving heart could not see such things and not feel. That loving heart could not see such things and not feel. Not only did Jesus feel, but all throughout Matthew, we see him working in compassion for his people. Do you know the heart of Jesus? The heart of God? Your soul will not be at rest until you know and experience the heart of Jesus, the heart of God. One notable scholar said, whenever and wherever suffering and sorrow of body or soul met his eyes, his heart was moved with compassion. The compassion of Jesus is one of the deepest, richest, most comforting of all his Savior qualities, end of quote. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan commentator, wrote, Jesus Christ is a very compassionate friend to precious souls. Here his bowels do in a special manner yearn. It was pity to souls that brought him from heaven to earth and there to the cross. Misery is the object of mercy. And the miseries of sinful, self-destroying souls are the greatest miseries. Christ pities those most that pity themselves least. Jesus didn't simply come to feel compassion at the miserable sight of man. He came to do something about it. 
And his work, his ministry, his leadership as the sovereign and supreme shepherd displays his compassion. Now, doesn't his heart compel you to submit to him and to submit to his word and to his leadership? Number four, the compassionate heart of Jesus in missions. So let me start by asking, do you know of a better missionary than Jesus Christ? He left his homeland of heaven to come to this sin-infested world to be opposed at every angle, to be hated, to be run out of town, crushed, crucified, buried, raised to rescue his people from their sin and misery into the eternal love and care of God the Father. He did not, does not, and never will leave his people in their sin and misery to remain harassed and helpless. By his compassionate leadership, he goes to them and rescues them without fail to give them true peace and comfort and assurance and goodness and joy and love. Jesus said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Jesus has so much compassion He anticipated a missionary movement, a raising up of teachers and preachers to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom for the salvation of his people in the first century and beyond. The harvest, brothers and sisters, the harvest is people. People were in need of and ready to receive the gospel of the kingdom of Christ, but who would go? Who would preach? Who would feed the sheep? Through the ministry of Jesus beginning with training and equipping and sending his apostles to raising up and ordaining ministers of the gospel in local churches under the authority of the apostles who would eventually carry on training and equipping men to teach and preach the gospel in all the world. Jesus, Jesus himself showed his compassion for lost souls in his missionary mindedness and plan to take the gospel to the nations. Jesus knew the workforce was small knew that more men must be raised up to herald the gospel, knew that men and women must work together across the world to make disciples of all nations. Right in front of him was a harvest of people, a harvest that would be there after he left earth. There were people out there ready to enter the kingdom of God. They just needed to hear from the laborers that God would raise up and send out. The wheat needed to be gathered into the barn. Now, in verses 37 and 38, is Jesus talking to his large group of disciples or his chosen 12? It's not always easy in Scripture to understand the distinction because it says disciples. So it takes very careful study. And my answer is I'm not sure. I'm not sure I know. But it seems likely he was talking to the larger group of his disciples in verses 37 and 38 asking that large group of disciples to pray for God to raise up laborers, teachers, preachers to go into the harvest. And part of my thinking there is because in chapter 10, verse 1, Matthew says he called to him his 12 disciples, which narrows the group, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. 
So what, what I see kind of maybe happening there and emerging, it's like Jesus was calling his church to pray. Oh, pray, dear people of God, that laborers would be raised up. And then he's answering their prayer by raising up the apostles to go into the harvest to gather God's people of the kingdom. Now, I'm not dogmatic there, but it does seem that Jesus is working to answer the prayers of his people. He's saying, I want you to pray, and, now I'm, and then I'm going to answer your prayer. Jesus cares about missions. Why? Why would he care about reaching depressed, despondent, demoralized, discouraged, deflated, dejected, defenseless people? Why give a hoot about them? Because his heart is filled with compassion. His nature is one to go and help sinful and miserable people who can't help themselves. Do you admire him for that? Don't, don't you want to be like him, to participate in his work in the way that he calls you to participate? Number five, the compassionate heart of Jesus in prayer. In verse 38, he charges his disciples to pray that the Lord of the harvest, the, the sovereign God would raise up laborers to go into his harvest. Now, many people... And this is ongoing. We've seen it for many, many, many years. Many people are confused about God's absolute sovereignty. They, they think if God is absolutely sovereign, especially in the area of salvation, why pray? That seems to be the objection. Why pray then? And, and this is just too simplistic of a view. Notice several things. Number one, Jesus said, therefore. That's not a toss-off word. That's important. The response to having too few laborers in the work of missions is what? Prayer. There's a lot of things Jesus didn't say right there. He prioritized prayer. Number two, he prioritized prayer to the Lord of the harvest. The, the harvest is the Lord's. The, it, it belongs to him. People are harvested into the kingdom because of God's sovereign and gracious work in them. And the one who answers the prayer is the Lord of the harvest who sovereignly chooses and elects those to go out into his harvest and to reap those he has chosen and elected. Number three, it is his harvest. He is the Lord of the harvest and Matthew explicitly, Matthew's making it very clear. He reiterates that it is his harvest. God is sovereign over the harvest. He produces it. It is his work. If God is sovereign, and if God is going to do it anyway, why does Jesus instruct his church to pray? Great question. Because God cares. He's compassionate. And because he wants his people to participate in his work, God will carry out his will. He will accomplish it. But when we pray for it to be done and it is done, our faith is fortified and we taste a bit more of God's compassion. His disciples were not just to pray, but to pray earnestly, beg, plead, implore. First, Jesus has compassion on miserable sinners. 
which must carry over into the hearts of his people who pray for laborers to go to miserable sinners to reap a harvest. Now, just to be clear here, not all of us will become teachers and preachers. You should not feel that pressure. It's just not on you. Not many will become teachers and preachers. That's not God's intent. In his mercy and grace, for the good of his people, God raises up a select few to teach and preach. But all of us should pray and should pray earnestly. That's kingdom work. How often do you pray that God raises up godly men to preach the gospel in all the corners of the earth? And women are involved in missions as well. We, we all are in various ways. Brothers and sisters, together, we must pray earnestly. I hope I'm okay doing this. I didn't get their permission, but Steve and Miriam Bowers are preparing for ministry. Steve is in seminary. He needs our support and love and encouragement. Are you praying for Steve and Miriam? Do you want to see God raise Steve up to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and to reap a harvest? Don't we want more Steves and Miriams to be raised up? Pray. We must pray earnestly. And, and I believe we will pray earnestly if the compassion of Jesus is in us, compelling us. Six. The compassionate heart of God. Now, here is where I hope it comes together for you and you make the connection that what we see in Jesus is what God is like. Jesus said in John 10, 30, I and the Father are one. Later in John 14, 9, Jesus said to Philip, have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can, how can you say, show us the Father? See, Philip didn't make the connection. In seeing Jesus, his person, his work, his heart, he was seeing God the Father. When we look to Christ in Scripture and we see his compassion, we are seeing the compassion of God the Father who sent him, who is indeed one with his Son. The author of Hebrews nailed it. He said about Jesus Christ, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The radiance of God's glorious compassion is seen in the person and work of Christ. Jesus Christ is the exact imprint of the compassionate nature of God. And that's why we see superlative compassion in Christ. He's showing us the Father. Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the triune God of redemptive history, the God of all gods, the Lord of all lords, says of himself in Exodus 22, verse 27, I am compassionate. When Moses was, was on Mount Sinai, the Lord descended and stood with Moses and declared of himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, 
but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now, right there, you have the mercy, grace, patience, love, faithfulness, forgiveness, and compassion of God right alongside of the righteousness, justice, vengeance, wrath, and judgment of God. We must not compartmentalize God in his glorious attributes. We must simply receive him by faith and receive his compassion in Christ. Now, brothers and sisters, we may see God's terrifying acts of wrath and vengeance and justice and think, how could a God of love do that? But that question arises out of ignorance and entitlement and insufficient knowledge of his holiness, righteousness, goodness, supremacy, and also insufficient knowledge of human sin and misery. When those truths are grasped, it all comes together and God appears gloriously consistent with his character, nature, and essence in all that he does. Outside of Christ Jesus, there is only God's condemnation and wrath for sinners. But inside of Christ, inside of the Lord Jesus Christ, sinners experience the compassion and love and acceptance of God because Christ himself has brought them into his kingdom by grace through faith to receive the lavish mercy and grace of God and Father. Christ is everything. In the parable of the prodigal son, or really we could say the parable of the two sons, the father of the two sons shows us the character, nature, essence, and heart of our father in heaven. And he arose and came to his father. That's, that's the harassed and helpless son. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven. And before you, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and is found and they began to celebrate that brothers and sisters is the heart of our god the heart of the old covenant and the new covenant god the heart of the one and only immutable god of the ages reject him and of course, in his justice, he will seek vengeance and rightly rid the earth of you and your evil and horrendous treason. But come to him through his son and you receive his warm compassion and love for you as father. What is your perception of God? You have sinned against God. You deserve his condemnation. The good news is that Jesus is the friend of sinners. He saw us in our sin and misery. He saw us in our harassed and helpless state. And he felt compassion. 
Even more, he rescued us by giving his own life for us. What is your perception of Jesus? Well, that must be your perception of God. God extends to you, dear ones, his compassion in and through his son. If you have Christ, you have God's compassion. If you know God's heart for you, you can rest in the comfort and joy and thankfulness of belonging to him who will care for you with utmost and unceasing compassion, care, and love.